everybody. I'm Husna Pasha and welcome to the Happy Chondriac podcast where we talk all things mental health. What I love to do, of course, is talk about mental health in a little bit of a more lighthearted way. Here's a space where we feel safe, we feel comfortable, and we're really owning uh, the conversation. I want to introduce somebody by the name of Beck Tilly. Is that like a celebrity name? I feel like it's a celebrity name. Hi, Beck. Hi, Husna. So great to have you on my show, Beck. It's so interesting, people. Um, I meet I meet randoms in the most fabulous way. I used to own a cafe called Alicia's Cafe Collective. We'll get into that another day about why it was called Alicia's. But Beck walked into my cafe and she ate my food and she talked about being a voice coach. And I think I was nearly there with getting my children coached. And then, I, of course, I left the business and I didn't get to see Beck again. But I never forget a fellow Tasmanian. And I think Tasmanians like to stick together. So uh, lucky for me is that we reconnected. And I'm so blessed, Beck, to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. Oh, me too. Me too. We're talking about uh, a topic that is dear to my heart because it is something that I have experienced myself. It's something I've been quite open about, and that is eating disorders. Um, And Beck, I'm so um, thrilled that you have decided to share your story. So enough of me. It's not (laughs) about me. It's all about you. Um, Talk to me a little bit about uh, disordered eating and your story. Mm-hmm. I had the kind of disordered behaviors and bad body image and body dysmorphia um, that was like kind of a mishmash of a bunch of different kinds of behaviors. So I never, you know, I, I didn't have straight up anorexia or straight up bulimia or anything like that. Um, for me, it was um, I, one of the terms that that I read was orthorexia, which is like an unhealthy obsession with healthy eating. So I had kind of restrictive behaviors where I would limit my intake of food. I also would like just eat really weirdly, like because some things in my mind were like quote unquote safe foods. (laughs) So I have like, I would eat like five apples and like six bananas and like 10 carrots a day, you know, like something ridiculous. Wow. Um, You're an entire juice bar right there. That's That's unbelievable. Yeah. And and, you know, I've never heard of orthorexia. That's how you say it, orthorexia. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So there was an obsession around this sort of healthy eating. Um, Mm -hmm. So when did this start? Just let me go back. So how old were you when this sort of began. Yeah, I, I remember having um like not good thoughts about my body from around the age of like 15, I would say. I started to just not feel good about how I looked. Um I'm not and it, and it definitely like then kind of gradually developed into just a full-on obsession that was just like always present in my mind no matter what was going on in my life. I was always thinking about what I was eating, the next thing that I was going to eat, what should I be eating? And we get sucked into like diets or the, you know, whatever I heard about food and weight loss. Um, so, yeah, it was just something that was always on my mind. And the the behaviours themselves were not like the most extreme apart from some of that weird excessive <laughs> amounts of fruit. Um, but, uh, you know, the, there, there were times when I like had some, a little bit of everything, a little bit of anorexia, a little bit of bulimia, little bit of binge eating disorder, 
um, definitely body dysmorphia and like when I looked in the mirror, what I saw could just like radically change in the space of one day, let alone over different days. Um, I so understand that it all depends on how you feel. I remember when I suffered an eating disorder and maybe mine was also a smorgasbord of, of all the disorders under body dysmorphia and disordered eating, but it depended on the day. You know, sometimes people would say, you look really unhealthy. And I would look in the mirror and then I would see somebody that was a little bit underweight. And the problem with that conversation of people saying you look unhealthy is for someone with disordered eating, it was a compliment Mm. because that meant, oh, that must mean that I'm small. For you, was it about being small? Was it about being fit and healthy? Was it about looking a certain way or being more in control of eating and, 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 and more the food aspect? It was about looking a certain way. I really, and also feeling a certain way, like that I felt big. And I think the root of it wasn't actually about how I looked or, or it necessarily felt, but it was around like control, having control of something in my life. Um, but I, but I always felt like I wasn't in control and especially with my body. So um, I did want to be skinny and always thought that I was fatter than I was. Yeah, and how I looked and how I felt. I I just felt like I I took up a lot of space. And so I think this also, like, could relate to, I think a lot of um, women especially experience the feeling of, like, being too much. I think I've kind of been talking to people about this in the last year or so. Like, was your experience of life, like, have you more often felt like you're too much or like you're not enough? Um, and of course it totally varies from person to person and we can, we can also experience both, but I think for women, it's more commonly too much. And for men, it's quite often not enough. Um, so I like, am a big personality and I've always been like that. And as a kid, like very exuberant, very enthusiastic, very loud, um, all of the things I love, by the way, (laughs) (laughs) um, and just like a bit much for people sometimes, you know, and so I got a message a lot of the time that I was too much from, you know, the adults around me um, and, and, and you know, not because they were terrible human beings but just because they were having trouble just handling me and um, and definitely, like, I, I was a difficult child to deal with. Like, in school I would, like, bite people and run away from school and all that kind of thing, had those kind of troubles. Um, Thank God we're online then. <laughs> It's okay. I'm safe to be around these days. I learned social skills at some point, mostly. Um, So do you think, Beck, speaking about parents and hmm. elders and our adults and, and how they influence how we feel and think, I don't like to take everything back to our childhood or, you know, who made me feel this way. But for you, was there some influence that created this body dysmorphia or this disordered eating? Without, I guess, passing blame, but just acknowledging. Yeah, I think, um, I think, like, the there's so many factors that can go into something like this. And like I said, it is about control. And like, if you don't feel like you're in, you're empowered, or like that you have sovereignty over your own life and what's going on around you, then you could develop. I think that it leads to can lead to developing unhealthy behaviors around trying to control other stuff in your life. Um, of course the like images that we get bombarded with can play a role in the eating disordered stuff. 
And yeah, if you if you have adults around you, like both um, both my mom and my stepmom um, and other members of my family, I would hear sometimes making negative comments about their own bodies or about other people's bodies. Um, and I'm not trying to like put any blame on anyone because the, they just grew up in a certain environment that had a certain attitude towards Absolutely. bodies. So yeah. we all just like live in this soup of um, unhealthy attitudes, which I think and hope is shifting these days. Um, Becca, I'm not sure if we are. And, you know, um, being a mother that has experienced eating disorder and body dysmorphia herself, I personally get really stressed um, at times where I'm so scared about how I'm speaking about myself on a bad day, if I'm feeling like, oh, don't look nice in these jeans. And my daughter hears me and I get really worried because um, hearing you saying that is about the way that we hear our parents speak or it influences us. And so I have to learn to be very mindful about how I talk. When she eats too many chips that day, I have to be careful about not to say anything and to talk about good health rather than what that would make you look like. And mm. I'm just being really honest about that because mm. as mothers and parents, we make these mistakes. We don't we don't realise probably on a conscious level how we sound. And we have to remember in particular for girls that are 14, 15, that's mm. a really crucial age. And you mentioned that before, um, that that's sort of the time where you felt that that was triggered for you as well. So it's really tough. Do you think that, and I, and I love that you said, I hope we're changing. I think we're getting there. But I'm a bit older than you. You're 32, yeah? Mm-hmm. 32 and absolutely delicious to look at. People, <laughs> if you see her on my page, and I will be sharing Beck Tilly's photo, she's like a rock star. So <laughs> gorgeous to look at. But anyway, that's a separate note altogether. But I have, back in my time, the Linda Evangelistas, everybody had to be minute. They had to be severely underweight, right? Mm-hmm. Now we have people like Kim Kardashian that can, you know, sit on concrete and they have their own cushioning because everybody's <laughs> backsides are as big as Mount Wellington. And that's in Tasmania. I only mean back till get that. <laughs> um, and so we never know what is the right body shape because mm-hmm. times keep changing, yeah? Mm-hmm. Um, so for you... When you had you at the, at the peak of your disordered eating or body dysmorphia, did your friends know that you were going through this? Yeah, no. Um, it was never something that really affected my external appearance that much. My weight did kind of fluctuate. There were times when I was more small and there were times when I gained a lot of weight because I was sort of not feeling well and I was sort of unhealthy binge eating. Um, but it never was at any sort of extreme. I was always, I've always just been like of a quote unquote average kind of body size. Um, yeah, so it was never something, I think the only people like if you were really close, I remember in high school, both me and one of my best friends had similar issues and I would notice her doing weird things and I'd be like, that's, I know what's going on there Mm -hmm. and maybe she could notice some stuff with me as well. Um, so maybe in our close friends group, but like we didn't have the awareness or the language to kind of bring these things up or, or go like, Hey, like, is are you okay? Is that, like, do you think that this is okay? Is there something that we can talk about? Um, nobody ever was having those conversations with each other in my friend groups. Um, for me, I had a partner who was really beneficial in my journey to recovery from like my early twenties. Um, And even, you know, I had like, so 
the the partner that I'm thinking of, he and I got together. I think I was like 23 when we got together. Um, and bef- like my partner before that was a really smart guy and really like he he was into a lot of kind of health things and self development and introduced me to a lot of amazing stuff. Um, but like and and he is very observant and but I don't think that like I don't know what he really thought but like some of the stuff that because he was just trying to help me out and like he would help with like resources on health but but often that was actually fueling the unhealthy stuff that was going on within me um so then but then my that partner that I first spoke of um we were together for like it was kind of two years and then a bit of like on again off again once I moved into state um but he was just such a like he he could see that I didn't love my own body and he like loved me so fiercely and was so into me physically as well as just like loving me as a person um that I think that was a big part of me I started to kind of be able to see myself through his eyes and that really helped me to like appreciate my body and and visually for for what I do have Kudos to whoever that guy is. I'm not going to mention him because he was like getting a whole load of phone calls and he might be married and we don't want to cause trouble. And we don't want to cause trouble. Do you think it's difficult for friends to be able to, if they do pick up on something that's going on for you, just say there is a person with a really severe eating disorder and you can tell visibly that they're really underweight and that's a sure sign that somebody isn't in a good place and there's some certain habits that come with that as well, you know, either not eating or rushing to bathrooms, or whatever it might look like. There are some certain signs that we can all pick up on when it comes to someone with an eating disorder. Do you think it's important for friends to be able to reach out and say, are you okay? Does it fuel badder behaviour, as you were sort of saying before, or sometimes it can give it the opposite effect? Where do you think friends and family play their part positively to that? it can be so tricky with like what words will have what effect you know whether you say to some like you said before like sometimes something like you are not looking healthy could for someone with a disordered brain could feel like yes I'm doing the right thing um, because I know they mean skinny Um, (laughs) so so I think more like for me and of course everybody's going to be different and I am not a therapist but I I would say that fundamentally someone with someone who's in a disordered place is not happy so coming at it from a place of going like you don't seem like you're doing well like you seem unhappy is there something I can do to support you do you want to catch up and have a talk about like how life is going because the times when my mental health has been the worst were times when stuff in my life was just not going well and I know that's not necessarily the case for everybody some people have you know mental health stuff depression anxiety that just is there when there is nothing actually externally wrong and I've definitely experienced that as well but um the times when I was most struggling with anxiety and were times when my I was not feeling safe like had a lot of housing instability stuff was really hard in my life so I think if somebody yeah if somebody is seeming like physically unhealthy in that way um and also you just never know like you can't tell an eating disorder by looking at someone they don't have to be underweight or overweight for there to be an actual problem um so 
point. Yeah, just tuning into people's, like, if they don't seem happy, being like, I'm here for you, you know, and whether that is um, being just asking do they want to meet up for a conversation or going, like, is there any other way that I can help? Like, because I can see you're exhausted or you're overwhelmed. Like, can I deliver you groceries? Can I, you know, for me, like, feeding me is just, like, my love language. (laughs) (laughs) Like, if somebody, because I hate, you know, because... Uh, having had this history, I, I do consider myself fully recovered in that it's not like obsessing in my brain every moment of the day about food. I feel so much freer now uh, when I think back to how it used to be. But but for me, like probably deciding what to cook for my lunches for the week and going to the grocery store and doing the cooking are more stressful for me than they are for your average person. And now is that because of a trigger on the day is it in when you're in a great mood because you have just now touched a little bit on the fact that you know and eating disorders are a mental illness so mm-hmm. people have to also remember that so it's probably in hand in hand with depression or anxiety or, or some form of mental health concern other than the eating disorder so talk a little bit about that Beck. so were your triggers based around an anxious day what did that look like for you because you say you know sometimes those days shopping yeah time. Yeah, um, it's like if you're if you're like under resourced already, that's when it's going to be the most stressful. And like for me, recovery has been a really gradual. It was gradual to become really disordered, and it was gradual to recover. Um, and times when I have more capacity because I'm not just overwhelmed by life are when things like cooking and going to the grocery store is not a big deal. But if I am like already a bit stressed, there's stuff going on or emotionally a little dysregulated, um, that's when it's going to be more likely to be a problem. And I would, I've had times where even though, even after considering myself recovered in terms of like not obsessing about what I'm eating anymore, still like would still sometimes have panic attacks in the supermarket. Mm. Um, So I really like the um, window of tolerance or window of capacity um, concept. What's Um, that? I think it was, I could be wrong about this, I think it was developed by a guy named Dan Siegel and it has to do with like nervous system theory and is related to polyvagal theory. So most people have heard about like fight or flight, right? Sympathetic nervous system takes us up into, like activates and can take us up into fight or flight if we don't feel safe. Um, and that's where we can get like really, we're really over um, agitated and can lead to panic attacks and stuff like that. Um, and there's also the flip side of that, if we have too much parasympathetic, um, we can get down-regulated to the point of the freeze state. So there's also fight, flight and there's freeze where we can get really like slow and kind of frozen and, and lethargic and, and uh, shut down. And in between those two places, is the window of tolerance or the window of capacity. And this is where we can play, we can learn, we can grow, we can do things, we can have social interaction because we have enough activation that we can do stuff and we also are calm enough to not be freaking out. So you need some activation and you need some calm and varying amounts for like different tasks, right? But our, that window can vary in size and this is like for me thinking about like where my capacity is like how how resourced how resilient I am is based on like how thin that window is or how large that window is absolutely because if you if you if you 
you know, are unsafe because you don't have a stable home or emotionally you're going through a lot because you've just lost someone on, and you're having relationship issues and everything is a bit intense you're, and you don't have the ability to take care of yourself, like your routine is messed up, you're not sleeping, you know, eating is messed up, whatever, that window is going to get smaller so that then like any little thing, even if it's a, even if it's a good thing, mm. like you get excited about something or like, you know, you – like there's a promotion at work or because there is good stress as well as bad stress. But that activation, if you, if your window is only really teeny tiny, yeah, that little activation can kick you into like from zero to a hundred and suddenly you're having a panic attack, even if it's yeah. nothing actually bad going on. Wow. So, so we can increase. And then also like if you get too calm, but your window is really small and you like do some sort of meditation that's designed to go like parasympathetic, you can end up just in free state. So for me, it's about widening that window so that we have more room to move emotionally. We can feel more without it freaking us out. Yeah, I love that. I think that's such a, a, a different and great way and perspective to look at these things. And I, I can almost, I'm just trying to imagine during COVID times mm. when people were, became so imbalanced with their norm, mm-hmm. um, how small that window became yes. and why mental health became so rampant, especially around times like that. Mm. Um, did you go to the, because you are very intelligent, by the way. So <laughs> the stuff that you're talking about is amazing. Is that something that was taught to you by a psychologist or psychotherapist? Is this your own learning? And talk to me about that. And then I want you to come back to meditation sure. because I don't believe that works for everybody. But yeah. Let's start yeah. with where you learned all this great stuff. Yeah. So, I I mean, I've always been interested in like just general, I'm a bit of a nerd. I like to know about anatomy and I like to know about psychology and how we work. Um, so I've always kind of been looking into self-development and how to take care of ourselves. Um, but this stuff specifically in the last two to three years, <clears throat> I um, started looking into um, understanding the nervous system and also trauma-informed facilitation because I work as a vocal coach and in like it's a very vulnerable experience for people often coming to a singing lesson um, working on their voice like they're very nervous so I wanted to know how I can support them vulnerable stuff can come up because singing is really personal and it touches into our emotions it's all so, about expression wow what yeah. what two incredible skills to put together <laughs> yeah yeah so I saw I saw you know I've seen other people describing themselves as trauma informed and they were not like psychologists but people working in other areas and I was like oh what is that I want to I want to be that so I started looking into I, I did a course in trauma informed facilitation that was led by someone called Liz Scarf um, who I believe is Melbourne based um, and yeah just reading books and and learning about these different kind of theories of the nervous system and how it all works. Amazing. That it is so great to see uh, the perspective the, the perspective that you have on how to heal and understand the psychology behind what goes on for you. It's mm-hmm. not a one size fits all when it comes mm-hmm. to healing mm-hmm. and recovering from any form of disorder of any sort. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk about meditation a little bit because mm-hmm. there have been times in my life where I have found meditation very, very helpful. Mm-hmm. But I'm also a person that is in overdrive most of the time. But I like to be like that either. I don't find that to be, uh, for some people, like, what are you doing? <laughs> for me, I love to be doing lots of things. It keeps me buzzing. It keeps me happy. But then it's really hard to sort of settle and, and, and come down to a really sort of calm state. And mm-hmm. if I'm in a state like that, 
don't ask me to meditate. Right. It's actually going to make me more anxious. Mm-hmm. So what are your thoughts on meditation? Mm. And meditation is something that I had trouble with in times that I have tried it, um, particularly the focus on the breath. I would get just start to get really anxious and really stressed out in trying to focus on my breath, which is also interesting because traditional singing teaching focuses a lot on the breath as well. Just about to mention that, actually. Yeah, so I think, I think there's... There's an over-focus on the breath in the singing world and probably in the meditation world as well. And for some mm. people, super beneficial. Um, for other people, can be triggering. So for me, what's been more beneficial for me is um, embodiment-type practices, like movement, being aware, like going like, okay, what is what emotions am I feeling? What does How does that manifest as sensations in my body? How does that want to move? Do I want to make sound based on that? Those are some practices that I have found more accessible for me than seated meditation. Um, and this is kind of, I, I there's this great book called Trauma-Sensitive Mindfulness um, by David A. Trelevin, I believe is how his name's pronounced. And that was my first when i read that i my mind was blown because i was just like oh this is you know meditation isn't helpful for everyone or like one way of meditation isn't helpful for everyone um and what you said about like being really like activated a lot of the time and ha- really having a lot of trouble like coming to that really really calm state um a few when when covid when i when i moved back to hobart from melbourne which was in july 2020 um I wanted to, I was like, what can I do? Because, and especially I was hearing of some of the um, the flats in Melbourne, yep. the blocks of flats, they were getting locked down and in an excessive way. And it was really messed up how um, yeah. things were happening. And I was like, what can I do to help people in, in maybe in these situations or in future situations? And so I started, um, I don't remember who, where it started, but I, I had this network of different kind of like, mental health professionals who had worked in community kind of projects before who I like did a series of interviews with just to kind of find out like what's a good way to approach something like this when if, if I was to develop some sort of program that I could do over Zoom or whatever. And um, one really valuable thing that one of those people gave to me was meeting people where they are. Like if you are working with someone as a vocal coach or as a therapist or whatever your thing is, and they are really, really overactivated. You don't go, okay, we're going to take a really deep breath and we're going to just calm down. Oh my right? God, stressing me out. You <laughs> saying it, <laughs> right? Wow. Yeah. So like, meet them where they are. So if they're like here, you start here and you go, okay, let's do some rhythm. Let's do some clapping. Oh, let's wow. go back and forth. Like if you're in the same room with them, something like that. And did, then, did like, you learn even in, in interviewing or or when you are talking to somebody in a workplace about mirroring behavior. Yeah. That, yeah. It's very similar. It's exactly yeah. the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So starting where they are and then if, you, if you're if you trying to help them to be more calm, then you can come down from there. But you don't try to take them from 100 to zero straight away. It's just not going to feel good. It is absolutely not going to feel good. And the good. same the other way around. Like if someone's really withdrawn, you don't go, okay, we're going to like get up and do this like super, you know. You go like, okay. <laughs> Like well, actually, Beck, that's my other. that's my husband, Beck. You know, I try to take him from zero to a hundred, and he doesn't <laughs> like that. So, <laughs> Beck, you're just unbelievable. I I am in awe of you. You are so articulate. You're so intelligent. You're so self-aware. 
um, the work that you've done to recover and to get where you are and still say there are days, there's some triggers every now and then. I know what they are, but I know how to sort of center myself and find the balance through learning, through education uh, and through vulnerability is what I'm loving about you. You being this open and vulnerable, I am guaranteeing you not only have you inspired me today, but you are going to talk to such a humongous audience because I know there are thousands and thousands, if not millions of Beck Tillies and Husna Pashas out there that have experienced and are experiencing disordered eating, body dysmorphia, self-love, self-worth issues. And you've given people a lot of tools and tips today about how to discover what works for you. Mm. The other thing I really love about what you've said is that when you want to reach out to a friend around things such as specific things around disordered eating, don't go straight for the jugular and say, well, you look really skinny today. Right. <laughs> how about, hey, you haven't been yourself. Yeah. Let's have a coffee. So something I can do to help and active, actively listening from a non-judgmental kind of ear. That's the kind of tools and tips I'm hearing from you today. And I'm in awe of you. Darling, if there was a key message you would like to deliver to our audience today, what, what does that look like for you? I feel like my key message in all areas of life, in my work and also in my personal life is just like there is no wrong and right. There's no one right way to sing. There's no one right, right way to approach mental health recovery. Everybody's really different. And if you hear people going like, this is the way you do, and there's no one right way to eat, right? There's no one right diet. There's no one right way to exercise. Like what works for one person isn't going to work for other people. So you just need to kind of be open and, and like listen to yourself more than um, external sources and and really go like what what does my body need what does my mind need what does my heart need just trying to like take time to tune in and go what am I actually feeling right now I think that's the most beneficial practice that I have right now is actually just like if I'm really if I'm having a bad day and I'm just like shitty for no apparent reason. I'm like, what? Mm, I'm grumpy and I feel like crap. <laughs> like, mm, what I have recently learned is it's probably because there's a feeling that I haven't taken the time to feel. So I just like lie down on the floor and put on some music. I'm like, oh, okay, that's what that is. <laughs> just like need to have a cry or need to have a dance or need to have a sing or whatever it might be. So um, just tuning in and going, what is right for me in this moment? And knowing that there's no rules and there's no wrong or right and just because you don't find meditation calming doesn't mean you're broken. That's so, so true. And just because I'm highly elevated doesn't mean that's a problem. Right. Um, Beck, what incredible advice today. I'm, I'm so humbled to have had you on my show today. I'm not going to let you get away <laughs> with not singing oh, yeah. us a little tune. <laughs> I, I, I stalked you on I stalked you online the other day and listened to you sing. And it soothed me and it healed my soul. And sometimes I think people that we don't even necessarily need a therapy of such or anything more than maybe just the sound of a person's voice and simplicities of music and joy. And goodness me, you make me feel that way. Um, I'm going to promote the hell out of you, Beck Tilly, because <laughs> I think you are just ace. So I'm going to um, hand over to you to take, away, take us away on a really great song. 
I think I'm going to sing a song, if I can remember all the words. I didn't prepare this. This is by Tommy Emmanuel, actually, I believe. It's called Today is Mine. <sighs> when the sun came up this morning, I took the time to watch it rise. And as its beauty struck the darkness from the sky, I thought how small and unimportant all my troubles seemed to be. And how lucky another day belongs to me. And as the sleepy world around me woke up to greet the day, all its silent beauty seemed to say, so what, my friend, if all your dreams you haven't realized? Look around you now. You got a whole new day to try. Today is mine. Today is mine to do with what I will. Today is mine. My own special cup to fill, to die a little, that I might learn to live, and take from life, that I might learn to give. Today is mine. I'm Hosta Pasha. This is Beck Tilly, and I'll see you on my next episode. See you, peeps. <laughs>